Well, good morning. We're here in the First John class. This morning we're looking at First John chapter 4. If you want to turn there, go ahead. First John chapter 4. We're going to try and cover verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6 of First John 4. Let me pray before we dive in. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as your people to consider the truth of your word, to consider what it means for our lives, to seek by your grace to live according to what we hear. Would you give us grace? Would you open our minds to understand? Would you cause us to hear and to do what we hear? Would you help us to see, most of all, the Lord Jesus? who loved us and gave himself for our sins. We pray in his name. Amen. Discernment is vitally important. It actually could be the difference between life and death. And you know this from your own life. Maybe you have a friend who's gluten intolerant. Say they have celiac disease. It really matters that you discern if that's the case. You need to check those nutrition facts and make sure there's no gluten at all in whatever you're about to put in your body if you have celiacs. It could really be the difference between life and death. Or maybe you don't think about it so physically. Maybe you think about it with regard to what you watch or what you read. It's good to discern truth from error, life from death in the midst of all the media you take in. One family in our church teaches their children 10-year-old a seven-year-old and I think a five-year-old to say discernment whenever something happens on a TV show that they really shouldn't be seeing. And it teaches them to have discernment, hopefully by God's grace, that there are some things we shouldn't subject ourselves to, some things we shouldn't watch, some things we shouldn't read, some things we shouldn't listen to. And when we do, we should know the difference, that this thing could kill us if we're not careful. Discernment is vitally important. And discernment is really what our whole text is about this morning. 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to read starting in verse 1 through verse 6. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I really have one point this morning, and it's at the top of your handout after main idea. Test all teachers by their doctrine of Christ and Scripture. Test all teachers by their doctrine of Christ 
and Scripture. And we're just going to take that main point kind of in three steps, according to the verses. Verse 1, test all teachers by their doctrine. Verses 2 and 3, test them by their doctrine of Christ. Verses 4 to 6, test them by the Scriptures. Everybody with me? Okay, praise the Lord. So, who are these spirits? Test the spirits. If you're, uh, if you're reading the ESV, you see the heading says test the spirits. Verse 1, that comes from, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. We've been in 1 John for a couple of, I guess, months at this point, weeks at least. Who are these spirits? Any ideas? Just shout it out if you think you know. Okay, yep, it says they're either from God or they're from the Antichrist. Verse 3. What does that tell us about who they are? Or what they are? This is how you teach a class. You take the most difficult thing and you just ask the class. (laughs) I guess if they're from the Antichrist, then they're... Yeah, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two truths we could say, and one of them is not true. So there's truth and falsehood. And one of them is from God and leads to God, and the other one is not from God and leads away from God. That's a good point. But who are they? Are they ideas? What do you think? Okay, are they agents or are they ideas? Rusty? Uh, I would think from the end of the previous chapter, at least the spirit on the good side we're saying is the person of a God, and so it would be a, a person. I think that's right. So I think the contrast in verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God, is being contrasted with the false prophets, or the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist in verse 3. So there's some sort of personal agent involved here. I'm just using that word agent as in contrast to abstract idea. Let me tell you what I think. I think that everyone who comes to you saying they're from God is from a spirit. Either the spirit of God or the spirit of Antichrist. So when somebody comes to you claiming to be a Christian teacher, there's a spirit behind them. Either the spirit of God or the spirit of Antichrist. And whatever they're, whatever they're saying is from determines whether it's true or false. Does that make sense? One commentator put it this way. I thought this was helpful. Behind every prophet is a spirit. And behind each spirit, either God or the devil. I think that's helpful. Behind every prophet is a spirit. And behind each spirit, either God or the devil. We shouldn't ignore in our 21st century American context that there are spirits. There are angels. There are demons. God is there. The devil is there. We're dealing with spiritual powers, principalities. And when someone comes as a teacher claiming to tell you the truth, 
they expose themselves by what they say. What they say tells you they're either from God or not. So you don't know if someone is from God just because they say they are. Does that make sense? You actually need to think about what they say. So if someone says, I'm from God, yet they haven't told you enough information. That's, that's almost nothing to go off of. All right, you say you're from God, but what else do you say? What do you say about God? And more than that, what do you say about Jesus? That's the real test. You with me? So I think the, the spirits are those personal agents or forces behind the false prophets. See that at the end of verse 1? Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Maybe you remember from a couple of weeks ago when Rusty was up here and we looked at 1 John 2, verses 18 to 27. 1 John 2, verses 18 to 27. There's a lot of strange parallels. It's like the same guy wrote it between chapter 2 and chapter 4. Rusty, will you read that again for us? 1 John 2, 18 to 27. Just listen for all the parallels between this and what you already heard in, in chapter 4. Uh, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So there's Antichrist again. Keep going. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Now, pause right there. How do you know it's the last hour? He said, therefore, it is the last hour. How, does, how do you know? Many antichrists have come. Because antichrists have come. They're already here, so it's the last hour. Keep going. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Now pause. Verse 19. They went out from us. Who's the they? I think it's the antichrists. Or I think it's at least people in control of the antichrist, if you will. They were in the Christian community... But they went out from the Christian community. Why did they go out? Well, he already read it. It's because they weren't of the Christian community. Keep going, Rusty. Uh, Four. Oh, I lost what I was. Sorry. <laughs> for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They went out because they weren't of us. If they'd been with us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that we would know that they're not of us. Does that make sense? These are the antichrists, or the people in the control of the spirit of the antichrist. Okay. So when we get to chapter 4, he's not changed the subject. He's not talking about something completely new and unrelated to what he's been saying. He's continuing to unpack and apply what he's been saying. That there are people who come to you, whether they're amidst and among this church or not, and they say they have a teaching that's from God. And every one of us is responsible to evaluate, to test in the midst of that teaching. Is this person actually from God? How do I know that? Well, verse 1 tells you, and actually the whole passage tells you, because the word you, do you see that in verse 2? By this you know. Nod your head if you're with me. You see the word you? It's plural. You can't tell in the English but it's y'all in the Greek. By this, y'all know the Spirit of God. And then he does it again. I think the word you shows up four times here. Little children, y'all are from God, verse 4. Again, verse 4. For he who is in y'all is greater than he who is in the world. And then it's really explicit in verse 6. We are from God. 
He's talking about not just one person, but multiple people. We'll get down to verse 6 and to who that we is in a minute. So all of us as Christians need discernment. We are called to discern truth from error, true spirits from false ones, whether something actually comes from the spirit of God, from God, or is a false prophet from the spirit of Antichrist. All right, well, I said test the spirits. It's probably important for me to tell you what I mean by test. The word for test the spirits in verse 1 has to do with proving or examining. One commentator used the illustration of coins, that you're checking them for the right color, the right weight. You can tell if a coin is a false coin because it's discolored or it doesn't weigh enough or it weighs too much. That's what the idea of testing is conveying. That we're supposed to look and examine whether this is true, whatever it is that's being said. And if it's true, it'll prove it's from God. If it's not true, it'll prove it's not from God, regardless of what anyone says. So we need to test before we trust. When someone comes with a teaching and says it's from God, you test it, John would say, before you trust it. And that's for all of us. I think there's probably two extremes uh, when we talk about the need for discernment, the need to test the spirits. Uh, we, can, we can be superstitious, just believe everything, think that anything spiritual is godly, which is not necessarily the case. So no discernment, believe everything. Or we can be skeptical and believe nothing. That's sort of discernment turned up to 11, higher than it's supposed to go. Because some people say they're from God and actually are. So we want to avoid superstition, believing everything, and skepticism, believing nothing. We want to believe the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Any questions about any of that? Before I consider a little bit of application. What would you say to someone, you know, we would say, hey, test it before you trust it. But we would also say that the word of God is sort of self-authenticating in, in the sense that you don't want to take anything outside of the word of God to, to validate it as the word of God because then that is the standard. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So yep. There's a sense in which there has to be a baseline. Yep. Of here are things that we believe and trust, and then I'm going to, based on that, test other things. Yep. So if someone's, yeah, how do you answer that for maybe for the Christian and for the non-Christian? Because they're going to be testing things according to a different standard mm -hmm. or different, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Great point. John is not telling us to test the Bible. John assumes that the Bible is truth from God. So, so for John, and it should be the case for us if we're Christians, right? We're taking the scriptures as our objective standard that is truth from God without any mixture of error. That's what our church statement of faith says. We confess that the scriptures are the word of God without exception, even the parts we don't like. So the scriptures are our objective standard, the thing that's outside of us, that's unchanging and true that you take all of the things you hear from a teacher or a spirit and you test it against. Okay, and we're going to get to this more as we get down to verses 4 through 6. 
So the command is not to test the truthfulness of the scriptures. It assumes the truthfulness of the scriptures. Justin's exactly right. You need some sort of standard to test things according to. Well, the standard is the truth. Where do you find the truth? In the scriptures. God is there and he's not silent. He's spoken. He's good. He's revealed himself. And he's given us everything we need to know and please him. So when anyone comes to you and says, I'm from God, let me tell you about him. You check it with the book. (laughs) And if they say something that's in contradiction to the book, they're not from God, no matter what else they say. Okay. Um, The question about what do you do with non-Christians as it relates to this uh, is a longer topic that we covered in our evangelism class and our apologetics class. And you can get those on the podcast for a fuller answer just because my time is limited. I'll say, um, I would encourage you to assume the truthfulness of the scripture and to act as if it's true and to argue as if it's true, whether or not someone says they believe it. Okay? Because what we think about the Bible does not determine the truthfulness of the Bible. What they think about the Bible does not determine the truthfulness of the Bible. So I hear really well-meaning, I trust godly Christians say things like, we're going to argue for God's existence and we're not even going to touch the Bible. And I'm like, you're cutting yourself off at the knees. Don't do that. (laughs) I mean, I I understand they come to you and they say, well, I don't believe that's from God. I'm just saying that doesn't change the fact that it's from God. (laughs) Now, I might not say that in a conversation, okay? But I'm not going to let it limit the way I use and interact with the Bible, because of my convictions about what the Bible is and how conversion works. Somebody comes to life from death because God's spirit worked on them through God's word. If I want to see that happen, I ought to use God's word. Okay. Uh, That's the really short version. It's probably too simplistic, but you can go back and look at the evangelism class on the podcast. There's one titled, what if they don't believe the Bible? where I try to give an hour just to that question. Um, So that might be helpful. And then the apologetics class as well is out there. Uh, Let's consider a little bit of application from point one. Test all teachers by their doctrine. And maybe you can think of some others. I'll I'll open it up to you all in just a second about how we might apply this command to test the spirits, to test all teachers by their doctrine. I thought of a couple of things. One, this is why we have a membership process at our church that everyone who wants to join up with us and follow Jesus with us goes through a three-hour class, fills out an online application that's fairly extensive, and goes through a one-hour or longer interview with a pastor, and then gets presented before the congregation. Because in some sense, everyone who comes to this church and says, I'm with Jesus, can I follow him with you, is saying, I'm from God. They might not be a formal teacher. They might not be in some sort of institutional position or office that declares them to be a teacher, and yet they're coming to you with a teaching about God. They're saying, I know God. I have a relationship with him. I follow Jesus. I know what he's like. In one sense, we should trust but verify, right? We should test before we trust. It's the same thing. So we're looking for a credible profession of faith. Does your life accord with what you say? Is all of your doctrine according to the scriptures, at least on the most fundamental points? Something else I note from the text, 
Uh, look at that first word in verse 1. What does it say? Beloved. Beloved. It's interesting. He's about to go on to warn them and exhort them towards discernment. Don't believe everything you read or hear. You might think that that's an unloving thing to do. John thinks it's a loving thing to do. John thinks that warning someone about what will kill them is a very loving thing to do. That's why he calls them beloved. Those ones that I love, let me tell you about the road that leads to death so that you won't go on it. So it's a loving thing to warn people about God's wrath, about his judgment against sin. It's a loving thing also to tell them about how they can be saved from it. That Jesus Christ died for sinners. That he rose from the dead for their justification. That he ascended to the right hand of God. That only in him can you be free from the wrath of God, forgiven of your sins, given eternal life, fellowship with God and with God's people. That good news starts with very, very bad news. That God is holy and we've all sinned against him. Every single one of us. Me and you and everyone you've ever met that we've done what God said not to do and we've not done what God said to do and because he's good he should punish us he should judge us and separate him from himself because he's good and holy and yet he's made a way for sinners to be with God forever that's the most amazing news that you will ever hear it's incredible and it's loving to tell people that even the bad part about being sinners and needing forgiveness People today don't believe that it's a good thing to tell people that they need forgiveness, that they've sinned, that they've done wrong. People today think that's a personal attack against someone. I'm telling you, it's not. It's an act of Christian love. Third application from this passage, and then I want to hear what you think. Test all teachers by their doctrine. Well, it at least implies that, and I said this earlier, spiritual activity is not necessarily godly activity. So just because something is spiritual doesn't mean it's from God. There's all sorts of spirits out there that aren't from God. There are spirits which are contrary to God, the spirit of Antichrist, which we're about to look at in verse 3. So it's become popular in the last decade or so to say that you're spiritual and not religious. That's not necessarily a good thing. Some ways of being spiritual aren't from God. Spiritual activity is not necessarily godly activity. We ought to test the spirits. Just a couple of things by way of application for that first point. Test all teachers by their doctrine. Any comments you have or questions you have about that? Yep. I mean, I guess this kind of goes into the bigger conversation about testing the someone in the body based on their actions, but aren't there some cases where people can, like, they know the right answers, but their life doesn't really accord with that? Yes. So you have to, like, check that, too. Sure. So, yes, our passage has a lot more to do with what their doctrine is, what their teaching is, and testing that. If you read all of 1 John, and if you've been to other weeks in the class, you'll notice there's like kind of three tests that he uses to see if someone knows Jesus. One is the doctrinal test, which we're camping out on today just because that's our passage. Another is the social test. These are all from John Stott. I think they're very helpful. The doctrinal test, who do they say Jesus is? The social test. How do they relate to other Christians? 
If you don't love the brothers, you show that you don't love God. And then Stott says the moral test. That Jesus said, if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. So if your life is characterized by rebelliousness, lawlessness, disobedience to God's word, you can actually undo with your life what you say with your mouth. That if you say, I follow Jesus, and then you live in all sorts of debauchery, you're just proving that you don't actually follow Jesus. I understand Christians still sin. I think the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that one of them doesn't sin. It's repentance. So a Christian who continues to sin is grieved over their sin. They're remorseful by God's activity because of their sin. They turn progressively from their sin. They start to look more and more holy as God is holy. Right? So yeah, John's going to give us all three of those. What's their doctrine? What's their life look like? And how are their social relationships among God's people? Do they love the brothers? Right? This passage just focuses on the first one. So that's why we're focusing on the first one. Great question. Rusty? Uh, there's kind of an obvious note, but it, you know, it doesn't say to test the spirits by how many followers they have. Mm. You know, and so sometimes when we're looking out at just people who call themselves Christians, we base, we base whether or not we believe them on how many people follow them. Come on now. Hope y'all are listening. That's going to come back up in verse 5. Excellent, Rusty. Lyle? Yeah. So one other thing that comes to mind is that um, I was just... Sometimes it's a challenge to figure out hmm. what particular religious groups or you know, parachurch church ministries or even churches believe. Mm-hmm. Just think of this as a friend who was moving to a place I used to live asked mm. about church recommendations. I said, well, okay, I know this church where I was a member and I can say, you know, salad, etc. And then um, and they had a little bit different theological background, like still a believer, but a little different. Isn't there were a few other churches in the area that had heard good things about and I was trying to look things up and sometimes it's hard to figure out mm-hmm. where do they fall. So just an observation that Clarity about where a church or an individual or a ministry stands is really helpful, but mm. maybe in our advertising culture, not the most popular thing to put out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. A church that doesn't tell you much about what they believe is telling you a lot about what they believe and how important it is to them. That's excellent. Okay, let's move on just for the sake of time. Point number two. I've told you to test them. John's told you to test them. How do you do it? Okay, what do you test them according to? Well, test them by their doctrine of Christ. What that means is who do they say Jesus is? Verses 2 and 3. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, he tells you in verse 2 to ask him about the incarnation. What do they say about Jesus having come in the flesh? There's a reason for that. 1 John, most commentators think, is a circular letter to a group of churches who are dealing with a specific kind of doctrinal error. These people who have gone out from the Christian churches, proving that they're not of the Christian churches, are saying that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He only looked like he came in the flesh. It's called docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism. Uh, A docetic, someone who follows docetism, we could say is a spirit who says that Jesus was only a spirit. 
I worked on that one. <laughs> Think about it. A docetic is a spirit who says that Jesus was only a spirit. Turns out he wasn't only a spirit. He came in the flesh. He actually was truly human and everything that that entails, except sin, which actually isn't what it entails to be human, amazingly. So ask him if Jesus came in the flesh. What do they say about Jesus? Did he actually come in the flesh? Is he truly man? That's not the only thing that John wants them to say about Jesus. And I just don't want us to miss this. Just because he grabs onto the incarnation, the true humanity of Jesus, does not mean that's the only thing that we're supposed to look at with regard to who they say Jesus is. I think that's most clear from verse 15 of chapter 4. If you look down at verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. So it's something about Jesus that's more than just his true humanity, though of course that's involved. Maybe we could say Jesus' humanity is the limb of the tree and all of who Jesus is is the tree trunk. So that's why I say test them by their doctrine of Christ. Who do they say Jesus is in both his person and his work? Do they say that he's truly man and that he's truly God? Do they say that he left heaven to save sinners, that he came to earth as a man without sin to substitute for sinners and forgive them of their sins? That's the biblical picture of Jesus, that and much more, but that's kind of the white hot center of the person and work of Christ. And if somebody comes to you and says something different about Jesus, uh, Paul says, I think in 2 Corinthians, that there are other Jesuses out there, that there are people who come and profess another Christ. Not that there actually is one, but that people are holding on to a false Christ, somebody who's different than the biblical picture of Jesus. They're showing you that they're not from God, even if they claim to be. Jesus would say, you don't know the Father if you don't know his Son, Jesus. Jesus would say the work of the Holy Spirit uniquely is to draw the focus on Christ, to glorify Christ. He's been characterized as having a spotlight ministry, that he shines the light on Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so whether you say you're from the Spirit or not, whether someone says they're from the Spirit or not, what do they say about Jesus? Because the Spirit of God is always making much of Jesus and the true Jesus, the very specific Jesus, the biblical Jesus. I was uh, fascinated earlier this week as I was studying this. Do you remember the story in Mark chapter 5 about Legion, the guy that's full of demons, and Jesus casts out the demons and sends them into a herd of pigs, and the, herd, the pigs run off into the water? You know that story? It's interesting in Mark 5, that demon knows who Jesus is. He says, what do you want to do with me, son of God the Most High? Now, we could in one sense say, that is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, the Most High. And yet that demon doesn't know Jesus, not the way that a Christian does. So even to your question earlier, we're not just looking for the right words, but we certainly are looking for the right words. You can say the right things about Jesus. In one sense, evil spirits know Jesus is God's Son, but they don't recognize him as the incarnate Lord, as the one who's their master, as the one whose will they do, like we as Christians ought to. So 
So you can confess the true humanity of Jesus and the true deity of Jesus, and you ought to do that, according to the Bible. Do you also confess his lordship over you and your life? Does your life center around him? Every decision you make, every place you find yourself, every group of people you find yourself in, all the conversations you have with them. That's part of what it means to confess Jesus. That we need to recognize him as incarnate Lord. One commentator said we need to affirm the Messiahship, that he's Messiah, he's the one God promised in the whole Old Testament, and the incarnation, that he's really God come as a man of Jesus. We need to affirm the Messiahship and incarnation of Jesus. So he gives you the parallel by contrast in verse 3. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And then verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That instead is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And let me ask you, for John, how many Antichrists are there? Yeah, he said many. He said it in chapter 2, which Rusty read a moment ago, but he also said it in verse 1. I think the many false prophets show that even though they say they're from God, they're actually of the spirit of Antichrist. And how many false prophets are there in verse 1? Not just one, but many. And they're already in the world. I think those false prophets are the false teachers that John's dealing with, the docetics, the people who are saying that Jesus only appeared to be man. I think there are other kinds of false prophets. People who say they're from God, but actually say false things about God or about Jesus. Can you think of some examples of false prophets today? What comes to mind? Every other religion out there. Yep. Broadly, every other religion out there has a different Jesus. And so they show false... More specifically, piggybacking on that, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm, That's one I thought of. The lowest hanging fruit of the Yep, so, so we might, some people might know them as Mormons or Latter-day Saints, they call themselves, um, have a different Jesus. And if you don't know that, you should know that. That Jesus actually was a man who was adopted by God and became God. And that you can also become God. That's part of what the Church of Latter-day Saints teaches. That's a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. That's a spirit that's not from God. Other examples? False prophets? I think prosperity gospel preachers. I think so, yeah. Say they, you know, are preaching Jesus in the Bible, but their doctrine and their teaching has nothing to do with what Christ taught, how he lived, how he suffered, talking about sin, talking about repentance, like living humble lives. Like, there's none of that. Yep. It's all a man-centered gospel. Yeah, prosperity preachers, word of faith teachers, people who proclaim the prosperity gospel, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous right now in this life. That teaching is of the spirit of Antichrist. It's got a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. You know how I know? Because the Jesus of the Bible says you're going to suffer like he did. The Jesus of the Bible says that his followers will be persecuted because the servant is not greater than the master. 
Jesus was persecuted to death. Jesus and his followers all say, we're going to be persecuted if we follow him. It's all over the Bible. Well, the prosperity gospel has a different Jesus. A Jesus that wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and safe right now and forever. That's not the biblical Christian life, and it's not the biblical Christ. Any other, maybe one more example that comes to mind of a false prophet today? Maybe one that you even might have been tempted by in the past or think about? Yeah, yeah. Even like we were talking about earlier, that Jesus says if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. And the world today says we ought to love everyone, says that love is love, but they have a very different definition of love, at least than Jesus. That's a great example. I think by application, uh, test them by their doctrine of Christ. This is why, and Lyle said this earlier, I did not talk to him about this beforehand. This is why we ought to have doctrinal statements big, thick, robust ones that tell you what the church believes about Jesus. It turns out that good intentions are wonderful things, but they're not sufficient in and of themselves. You also need doctrine and the right doctrine and a lot of doctrine. I'm very pro-doctrine. I think the Bible's very pro-doctrine. So it's good to confess Christ. To t- for you, yourself, to tell people you know who you think Jesus is. And maybe even to have that written out somewhere. It's good for our church, as a church, to have that written out. And on the website, in the Statement of Faith, and in every single membership class. That one of the things we're doing, the most important thing we're doing, <laughs> is telling you who we think Jesus is. And we think we got that from the Bible. One commentator said, the confession is crucial. It will affect every other aspect of one's theology and worldview. What one thinks about Jesus always has far-reaching implications. And that is so true. Any comments or questions about that? Test them by their doctrine of Christ. Jeff? I was thinking how to, how to not be a contrarian. Mm. Yep. We've actually encountered so many churches who have big, thick doctrine. Mm-hmm. But it's because they think they need big, thick doctrine published on their website. Mm. And then their practice mm. doesn't match up. With mm. so yep. In the end, I came full circle to like, well, the true doctrine that they thought they needed to look right and attract people that they didn't do ended up convicting them. Mm. And, you know, in the end, showing, showing them that they're not, yep. they're not what they say they are. Mm. Yeah. It's the absence of doctrine and sometimes the presence yeah. of doctrine. It's good. So it's not just what you don't say, it's what you get what Yeah, I could say the same thing. And if I were teaching a different passage, I probably would say the same thing about doctrine that I said about intentions. Good intentions are wonderful, but they're not sufficient. You also need good doctrine. Well, we could say the same thing. Good doctrine is wonderful, but it's not sufficient. You need to live a life according to it. Right? And, and we would talk about that at many other places in in 1 John as we have. I do think, Jeff, you reminded me of something I thought about when Lyle uh, was talking about church statements of faith. I think this is important to notice what John tells us to test is not every single point of doctrine. 
it's the fundamentals. It's the foundation. It's who do you say Jesus is. He doesn't go after what the church thinks about spiritual gifts. He doesn't go after what the church thinks about the millennium. Right? There's lots of things that Christians of good conscience can disagree on and be Christians. The one thing you can't disagree on, be in good conscience and be a Christian, is who Jesus is. And that's why John goes after that. Any other comments about test them by their doctrine of Christ? Yeah. Can I just ask a question about the, the latter part of this, of verse 3, where it says, you've heard the Antichrist is coming, the spirit of the Antichrist is coming, now it's in the world already. Mm-hmm. Why, why does that need to be flat? Mm. What is that kind of correct? I think he's conveying the urgency and importance of what he's talking about when he says, well, and the other thing is the people he's writing to know that's true already experientially. They've seen the false teachers leave their churches and try to come back and persuade other people to leave by saying false things about Jesus, right? So John is calling them out as false prophets of the spirit of Antichrist, and he's saying they're now in the world already so that they'll understand the, the urgency of judgment, the urgency of truth and error that that identity of these people needs to be made clear so that the people he's writing to know how serious this is. I think that's what's going on there. Let's press on for the sake of time. Point number three, test them by the scriptures. So ask what they think about Jesus and then also assume the truthfulness of scripture and check them out according to it. We see this all over the place uh, in the scriptures. In John 5, I'll just do a couple of these. These are on your handout. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says they don't know God, even though they claim to. If they did know God, they would search the scriptures and find life. And what Jesus means, he makes clear, they would find Jesus. That the whole Bible is about Jesus at every point. And that if we search the scriptures hoping to find life, we'll end up at Jesus and not anywhere else. So the whole Bible is about Jesus. It leads us to him. He does this again in, verse, uh, in chapter 15, when Jesus is talking about how he's the vine and we're the branches, and the Father is the vine dresser, and he prunes us. You know what else he says in verse 7 or so? It's not just abiding in Christ. It's that. It's also... Abiding in his word, or his words. That's interesting. I'm going to just claim this, and you can ask me to back it up after class. This is all the words of Christ, not just the red letters. Right, so abide in Christ and abide in his word. Or we can think about Acts 17, which we heard preached on semi-recently. Acts 17, y'all know the noble Bereans, the Jews who were more noble than any other Jews that the apostles encountered. Why were they more noble? They searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. This is Acts 17.10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they, they went into the Jewish synagogue Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, 
examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's a a good, right, wonderful practice. That when we hear a teaching from a teacher, we examine the scriptures to see if it's so. We could go on. I think John is making a very similar point in verses 4 to 6. Listen to that again. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of your error. Notice a couple of things. First, the phrase, by this, at the end of verse 6, and link that back in your mind to the phrase, by this, in the beginning of verse 2. So he's giving you two tests. By this we know, by this we know. The first is their doctrine of Christ. The second is the scriptures. Why do I say it's the scriptures? One perceptive young man asked me this this week. I wonder if any of you know. Why did I say test them by the scriptures? I think that's true. That's not why I said by the scriptures. From verse 6. Rusty? Are you getting that from listens to us? Bingo. Who is us? It's got to include John because he wrote it. The apostles. The apostles. I think so. When in verse 6 he says we are from God, that we is contrasted with they in verse 5. Who is they? Just use the words of the passage. The, yeah, the Antichrist of this passage. False prophets. I heard somebody say it in verse 1. I think that's right. I think John is contrasting the false prophets who are of the spirit of Antichrist with maybe we could say the true prophets. The apostles. I'm not saying I think the apostles were prophets. I'm just making a point. Um, we could say maybe the false teachers with the true teachers, if that makes you more comfortable. So who are the true teachers that are from God, John, and everyone else who saw the resurrected Jesus and was appointed by him as the first people to take the gospel to the world, to plant churches, and to write down the Bible. So I think listening to us is listening to the word of the apostles. And it just so turns out the word of the apostles is the word of God. So we're extrapolating a little bit to say the scriptures, but I think the nature of what the apostles wrote is what's in view here, that they wrote truth from God without any mixture of error, and that would be true of all the scriptures. And even at the time of their writing it, some of them seemed to know exactly what was going on, because Peter says that Paul wrote scripture at the end of 2 Peter. So test them by the scriptures. How do you know someone is a true or false teacher? Check them out according to the Bible. Is what they say contrary to the Bible? Well, that's not the only thing he says. He also says, uh, I think, a threefold comfort in verse 4. You can imagine that this situation is really difficult for a church or a group of churches. 
that they've had people in their midst leave them because they have a different Jesus, and they're coming back, in one sense, harassing, at least spiritually, the, the other Christians, trying to get them to leave also, to profess this other Christ. And so John gives a comfort in verse 4. He again uses a word like beloved, little children. That's an address uh, which conveys how much he loves and values them. He calls them little children. He does that a bunch in his letter. And then he tells them three things that are true and ought to comfort every Christian. Number one, you're from God. If you're with Jesus, if you've turned from sin and trusted him, if he's your savior, your substitute, your sacrifice, if he died for sinners of whom you're one, then you're from God. Unlike the false teachers, unlike the false prophets, not only are you from God, but you've also overcome them. And uh, just as a Bible reading tip, look at that word have. See that word have in verse 4, have overcome them? That's what's called a perfect tense. It's different from just a past tense. He's not just saying you overcame them, though that's true. It's a perfect tense, which means it's stative. You don't need to remember that. He's talking about the state of something that's already happened and how it's continuing to be the case in the present. So we could say, y'all are overcomers. You live in the state of having overcome them, right? That's why he says has, have overcome and not just overcame. And that's the case with all of the word have in this passage. And if you meditate on something like that, the difference between just a simple past tense and a perfect tense, it's actually really, really rich. It's really, really wonderful that John is saying something that wasn't just true of you in the past, but is true of you right now. That you're overcomers of false prophets. What does that mean? Well, you haven't listened to them. You haven't been led astray by their false teaching to a different Jesus. You're still Jesus from God and you give evidence of that and then he says number three that God is greater than the spirit so you're from God you've overcome the false prophets and God is in the spirit who's in them this is not which means that God and the devil are in an infinite war of equals that's not the case in the Bible God created everything else that exists which means God created the devil not as a devil, because he created everything good. But this is not just yin and yang. It's not evil versus good. And there's just going to be this eternal conflict forever. No. God is superior to everything else, including the devil. That's what John says. He who is in you, God, is greater than he who is in the world. That's a massive comfort to a group of Christians. Notice also verse 5. They are from the world. And how does he know that? It's because of what they say. Look at the next part. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Rusty said earlier, just because somebody has a bunch of followers doesn't mean they're from God. That's true. Actually, it could mean the opposite. Because when you speak from the world, the world, the world likes what you have to say. And so they follow, and they listen. So I think by way of application, numbers are not necessarily a sign of blessing. The world listens to them. I assume that's in mass. I don't see why it would be anything else. When you tell someone something that they want to hear, they like you. It's just a principle of life. So numbers are not necessarily a sign of blessing. They could be a sign of judgment. 
I think another thing, we should recognize the serious danger a passage like this one talks about, but we shouldn't despair. It's not that there's no hope. It is serious and significant, this kind of danger of being led away by false teaching. But if God is in you, he is greater than whatever's in them, whatever spirit, antichrist or not. There's no reason to despair, but actually much reason to have hope. God is able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to finish the work that he started on the last day when we see Christ Jesus. Another thing, I think any true gospel minister is going to welcome this kind of teaching. Anybody who comes to you as a Bible teacher ought to be glad to be checked out by the Bible. There's nothing to be afraid of anyway. If what you say is from the scriptures, it's just going to show itself when I check the scriptures. I think any true gospel minister will welcome such testing. This is not excessive scrutiny or skepticism. I hope I've already been clear about that, right? But it is checking out who Jesus is according to the Bible and who you say that Jesus is. Last thing, I think, uh, I think this passage exposes a clear dividing line between the church and the world between the righteous and the wicked. And I think that sort of thing is visible even in this life, that you can tell who's from God and who's not. And it might not be the way that you think or the way that your non-Christian friend thinks. I've already said, it's not because one of you sins and the other one doesn't. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that simple. But you can tell. If someone says true things about Jesus, if someone looks like Jesus, even increasingly so, in holiness and righteousness. The scriptures, Jesus himself talked about how uh, unbelievers will give glory to God on the last day because of our good works. I think this is true all over the place in scripture. I think it's true right here as well. There's a clear dividing line between the church and the world. The church is distinct from the world because they profess the biblical Christ and they follow the biblical Christ. So that just a couple of things by way of application. Any questions on that third point or comments on that third point? Test them by the scriptures. Anybody want to add anything or clarify something that's been said or in the text? Rusty? Yeah, I was noticing as you were talking, you know, John uses this message we have heard like repeatedly through there talking about the scripture. And then you see it in this passage, even like, you know, little children, um, verse 4, where it was, you, the spirit of the Antichrist you have heard was coming from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you have this idea of them speaking and people listening to them. Mm-hmm. You know, we're speaking, people listening to us. And so, that, you know, strengthening that even being the scripture. And then also, even the command to not just have heard the scripture, but continue mm-hmm. listening. Amen. Yeah. That's really good. That's really good. Other comments or questions? And we can open, up, open it up here. I've got a couple of minutes left on anything you've heard this morning, anything about the passage. If you want to ask a question or make a comment. Sam. So is it, is it fair to say that it's not just about affirming Christ in the flesh, but someone who does that is also kind of affirming broader kind of legal aspect of that? Just drawing 
the whole Bible, the Old Testament, that we would need that kind of that physical, fleshly sacrifice to to atone for our sins. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think the incarnation of Jesus, as I said earlier, is just the limb of the tree. And John's talking about the whole tree. It's everything you say about who Jesus is and what he's done. And I think you're right. The whole Old Testament makes clear we need a human mediator who will be perfect before God. And only God can save us. How do you square that circle if God comes as a man? That's the New Testament's answer. That's the tension of the Old Testament. We need a human mediator who will be perfect and always do God's work. And only God can save us from this horrible problem of sin. And the New Testament says, it's Jesus, y'all. It's good, Sam. figured drawing it out might help. That's good. Anybody else? All right, y'all, I'm going to pray. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this, your word, this clear word about truth and about error. I pray that we, your people, would hear it, would understand it, would walk in it, would glorify and honor you in so doing. Would you help us to treasure Jesus, the true Jesus, the biblical Jesus? Would you help us to not lose sight of him, our first love, Would you help us to cling to him by faith until we see him face to face? And would you send him soon? Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.